Coming up today, how one of the world's largest tech trade shows still plans to go ahead this year, and we explore the fascinating future of personalised medicine. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Koala. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hello. This was the week when two of the UK's biggest investors said they would not buy delivery shares because of concerns over workers' rights. Aberdeen Standard and Aviva, which manage over £800 billion between them, said they were put off investing in the gig economy company due to the working conditions of its riders. Deliveroo is expected to list its shares in April, with a valuation of £8.8 billion. This was also the week when a ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. The Ever Given, a massive container ship, got wedged into the trade route after some bad weather, causing a traffic jam as people work to refloat the vessel. And finally, this was the week when it was revealed that Microsoft is in talks to buy the messaging platform Discord for around $10 billion. Discord has more than 100 million monthly users and has grown in popularity during the pandemic. We really should have dedicated this entire podcast to a very big ship being stuck in a very small canal. I apologise that we haven't. But there is a really, really good story on Wired UK, which you should go and check out about the frankly ridiculous logistical operation that's going to have to take place to get the Ever Given out of the mess it's got itself into. What did we learn this week? Natasha, let's start with you. Well, this week I learned that Italian scientists have grown the world's heaviest cherry. This cherry variety is called Sweet Stephanie and it weighs 26.45 grams, which is the size of a small plum for reference. So your average cherry weighs around five grams. grams, So that's one really, really big cherry, basically. It took them 10 years to perfect, which seems like a very good use of scientists' time. Um, But the, the good news is that if you eat it, the cherry pip is not also ginormous. It is actually of standard size, they said. But I can't find anywhere that says what it tastes like so it could be like one of those bits of fruit where you get like a really big apple and it doesn't really taste as good i'm not sure Mm. but anyway or or it might just taste like a plum which would be thoroughly disappointing because essentially then they would have just grown a plum yeah that suck anyway if anyone (laughs) has a chance to eat a sweet stephanie please let us know (laughs) please do amit what did you learn this week i learned that the three-toed sloth may deliberately cultivate algae on its fur as a source of food so Researchers were wondering why the three-toed sloth uh, climbs onto the ground to defecate, whereas the two-toed sloth just kind of lets it drop from wherever it happens to be hanging in the trees. And they think it's because that, unlike their two-toed cousins, three-toed sloths have this kind of symbiotic relationship with moths. So the moths lay eggs in the ground, on the ground, um, helped by the sloth poop being there. And then they kind of feed algae that grows in the sloth's fur, which the sloth then uses as a source of food. So they invented agriculture you know entirely separately to humans on their own fur amit if you could cultivate a source of food on your own <laughs> skin what would it be I, i'm not sure i'd really want to eat anything that was grown on my, on my own skin <laughs> maybe maybe giant cherries 
maybe giant cherries. I'll, I'll push you no further. Please do leave a nice review or rating on your podcast platform of choice for our humble show. Some of you have already answered the call and we thank you. So uh, Raisin Car enjoyed our great variety of topics. AJ Can 75 says the team has upped their game and taken a deeper dive into topics. And B Pizen describes us as fully baked. What's a Funny Face says that we're their favourite news-based podcast and Tiberio says the podcast is a great way to start their Fridays. If you're similarly minded, do head to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a nice review. Our first story this week is about something called Mobile World Congress. That's right, MWC in Barcelona is normally one of the biggest events on the tech calendar. Every year, thousands of delegates from the biggest tech companies in the world fly in and it's where the likes of Samsung, Huawei and other mobile manufacturers tend to kind of announce their new features and products. But the pandemic meant that last year's event was very, very different. As it, meant to, as it began to take hold last February, one of the stories that we were keeping a close eye on at the time was what was going to happen to these big events like MWC. Natasha, you've been looking into what happened next. Yeah, so for the people who um, didn't read our article last year, basically the pandemic started coming along and for events like Mobile World Congress, this was a big deal because it's not really about what happens on stage, but about the meetings that happen in and around the venue. That's where that a lot of money gets generated. It's a place that's important for deals. It's about big money and grandstanding on new products and services. So $65 billion worth of business was brokered at MWC in 2019 alone in one6 million meetings so last year when COVID-19 started spreading everyone started to get uh, really really nervous and people started pulling out so major exhibitors like Huawei uh, decided to quarantine their Chinese executives and had their European executives on standby so you had loads of sort of really high up people within the company locked within their hotel rooms hoping that they'll be able to attend MWC Nokia pulled out Um, loads of other big exhibitors decided to do the same and and MWC should have been cancelled straight away But the exhibitors were saying it was going ahead, even though other events worldwide were falling right, left and centre. It was one of those big events at the time that we were looking at, similar with with Cheltenham Festival and some of the last few Champions League games that were being played, where you were like, how is this thing still happening? We can't really believe that this is still going ahead as planned. And the story at the time was that this had a lot to do with insurance and protecting the event organiser, which is called the GSMA, protecting their investment. And they wouldn't get insurance payouts, they said, unless the Spanish government declared that it was unsafe to hold the event. And if they, if the Spanish government didn't say it was unsafe to hold the event, then they had to press ahead, otherwise they'd be liable for millions of pounds of refunds for exhibitor space, suppliers. So they had to wait until an official message from the Spanish government saying, came through saying, you can't hold this event. And that did eventually happen, but not after, not until after weeks of kind of back and forth and agonising over whether this event was going to go ahead or not. And yet, despite going through that whole process last year, they've somehow got themselves into a similar mess again this year, amazingly. Yeah, it was a really weird standoff last year where the authorities were basically saying, oh, no, it's perfectly safe. We don't have any virus here. And all the MWC exhibitors were going, we don't want to come because there is definitely a virus. But the the thing is, at that time, the pandemic was kind of an unknown thing. But now we've lived through it for an entire year and events have really adapted to being online only. We've changed the way that we think about, you know, events and the way that we communicate with each other. And we know how bad all those big events that did happen 
happen early on in 2020 were they concentrated thousands of people in one same space for really no reason it was really dangerous and, and so that's why it's so shocking to hear the GSMA saying that they're going to hold Mobile World Congress this year no matter what it's true that they've planned a, force, a far smaller event so we've got between 45,000 and 50,000 delegates rather than 100,000 plus expected to attend this year but that's still a lot bigger than any other event that's confirmed to take place place this year and the interesting thing about this about what's going on here is that it's not the insurance this time that's forcing mobile world congresses organizers hands it's basically the deals that are struck with major exhibitors last year who paid for three times worth of their ex- exhibition space basically they said they paid for three years in advance to exhibit at mobile world congress um so that they could secure their spots it boils down to this if any of them want to attend the event will go ahead so the event's obviously planned for the summer so we're still a little way away but you know if you told me that you were planning to fly to Barcelona to attend a 50,000 person conference I I just wouldn't be, believe you at this point you know I'd be like what very wishful thinking to even think that we'll be able to go abroad at that point I think let alone into that sort of environment I was actually I think at the conference center where MWC was due to take place right at the end of January last year just before the pandemic kind of shut everything down and it's not a very COVID secure environment at all people milling around touching exhibits just open food tables and things like that it's really really the worst place you can imagine in terms of spreading COVID but I would think that the companies themselves the people that had booked even if you've booked an exhibitor slot surely you don't want the almost bad PR of bringing COVID back to the country where your executives are based you know who's actually interested in attending who's going to be there? So there have been quite a few major exhibitors who've pulled out, same as last year. So you've got Nokia's pulled out, Facebook, Oracle, Ericsson, Cisco, all have said no, um, they're not they're not attending. But there is one company <laughs> that has decided that it's the only basically the only confirmed large exhibitor uh, is this six month old American startup that has 15 employees and it's taking over the 6,000 square metres of premium space that would usually be occupied by Ericsson. Um, so they, they have this sort of very, very small team of people that they're going to send over there and they, they plan to turn this space into a cloud computing city that will showcase the future as opposed to Ericsson, which we can infer represents the past. And they're going to invite loads of different startups to occupy the space. And these are people who might not have been able to get a space in a normal um, circumstance because it costs a lot of money to do so. Um, but so far, with less than 100 days before this event takes place, no companies have taken the startup up, up on the offer to form this city. The companies said that it's going to bring 100 telepresence robots with them so that delegates that cannot attend in person can do so through an Android body. Now, how, how that looks, I'm not entirely sure. I can just sort of imagine a screen that's on top of some sort of rolling robot that kind of is making sort of sounds across the the echoey, chasmy um, sort of space as, as no one else is going to be there, just sort of beep, bop, beep, bop, bop, kind of around um, with, with these 15 people from this Texan startup just sort of watching on i suppose i mean it's going to be very weird if any human delegates do go it's going to be very weird to be wandering around this essentially empty conference center surrounded by little ipads on wheels moving around um and it's not just the kind of big companies that are going to be um missing from here we've spoken to some of the keynote speakers and they're they're pretty cagey people from nhs digital neuroelectronics qualcomm not really confirming that they're going to take up these slots that they've been booked in for for kind of keynote sessions 
do you think that MWC could still let Denby cancelled this year? Yeah, so once again, it's kind of at the mercy of the Spanish government who could decide that no events are safe to take place. Um, small companies have got lower ratings, um, but the, they're basically gambling on this event taking place. So if things go back to normal next year and this event has been cancelled, they're going to lose their money. And yeah, you're right. We, we spoke to a lot of speakers who said, you know, if, if, the, if the numbers are reduced, maybe. Um, if the conditions are right, maybe. But no one is kind of at this stage, even though we're, we're looking at sort of just a few weeks before the event, takes place no one's kind of coming out and saying oh yeah I'm just I'm very confident this is going to take place even though they might put money behind it um the the, the thing here is is fundamentally what could end up happening is the few speakers and the few exhibitors who do decide they're going to take a gamble and go to MWC this year could just be faced with no delegates at all I, I don't necessarily think that a lot of people especially as the vaccine hasn't been rolled out as, as widely as, as we'd hoped at this point, or at least by the end of June, you don't really expect those people to just want to catch a plane across the world and rock up at Barcelona and, you know, mingle with thousands of other people. I don't, I don't really see that being a very attractive proposition for many people. So they could end up with basically an empty conference, huge conference space with the exhibitors and speakers that have decided to say yes, and that's it, which is miserable. I think... One of the things that's really interesting about this is that, you know, I think businesses used to think that these in-person events were really vital. You talked earlier about the amount of business that was brokered at MWC. And I, I guess if you'd asked someone two years ago, they would have said, yeah, no, I need to be there in person. That's the only way we can get these deals done. But actually, we haven't been able to do that for a year and kind of life goes on, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It hasn't caused the the collapse of these deals. People are still making agreements that are over Zoom. Maybe they're not as... as uh, enjoyable to like conduct negotiations over zoom but the you know things are still happening so i'm interested in what this means for these event spaces for the events business which is a huge kind of global business if these companies are no longer going to be flying execs all around the world for conferences and face-to-face meetups will these kind of 10,000 20,000 50,000 person events ever really come back in the same way that they used to do you think I think they probably will, simply because um, some people still do feel that they have to conduct business like this in person. And it is true that if you attend these kinds of events and you you do have those sort of fortuitous meetings, you bump into someone in a queue, they'll say something interesting that sparks a conversation. It kind of it it does feel a bit one way. So the speakers go because one in a 100 people might be interesting, but the delegates go because it's a chance to basically lobby and try to corner people that you're interested in and network with them. And I do think that you can't can't necessarily do that with virtual events even though it's been tried you can be put in sort of you know breakout rooms and stuff like that but it's, it's not the same thing and and I think what what we're seeing is is action right so if you see, think of places like Dubai and Singapore we've written about this before there's a huge boom in the amount of people who are looking for business travel to go to have meetings there because they feel that even though you're taking a plane even though you're going that extra mile because that the lockdown restrictions in those locations are a lot less you can meet people face to face and you don't necessarily have to quarantine and go through all the rigmarole that you would in in other locations around the world and so so that that action the fact that there's been such a spike in, in business travel despite pandemic still raging on just shows that people do really think that face-to-face is the way to go so I think it might not be this year but certainly next year when vaccinations are more widespread we are going to see a return to form but the question is whether it's going to be you know half and half whether there'll be meetings that take place face-to-face at the conferences that generate a lot of money 
Um, but also a, a large chunk of it might be generated through Zooms that happen there as well. Yeah, I think from my perspective, if I never have to sort of wander around a trade show, you know, for a, for a, for a story or whatever, I won't miss it too much. I, I don't know what you guys think. Do you think this is the kind of event that you're going to miss? If you had the opportunity to go to MCWC, would you go right now? Will you ever go to an event like this again? Definitely wouldn't go to it right now. I think it's easy to forget who these events are actually for, right? And you've kind of suggested it um, in talking about the story there. It's not really for the press or even for the public. It's for buyers, for retailers like John Lewis and for component manufacturers from Southeast Asia to get in front of companies that might be able to distribute their technology more widely in Europe and North America. So I think there, there might be um, a reduction in interest from the press and maybe big companies like Samsung um, and Qualcomm and Cisco might not do big keynote speeches and make major announcements at these events. They kind of already weren't. They were doing their own thing online, live streamed already. But that kind of idea that you need 100,000 people all in one place at one time, we were already moving away from that to an extent. And this might be the nail in the coffin for certain aspects of it. I do think there's a place for for some live events. I am missing them after a year of not going to anything. Um, you know, I think we probably all felt there were too many tech events before COVID hit. Um, but I think it goes back to like what Natasha was saying about, you know, oh, you might bump into someone in a queue and just strike up a conversation or something. I think that's what I'm missing. If you schedule a Zoom with someone, there's always a, a specific goal for the conversation, right? It's like, I am going to interview you or we are going to sort out this deal or whatever your business is. But you don't have that if you just, you know, you run into someone in the same industry at a conference, maybe you grab a coffee, you have a chat, you get much more of a feel for like the general vibe of what's going on in the scene at the moment. Maybe you get a little tip off that leads to a more interesting story. I think that's what I'm missing, which I haven't been able to see replicated in the virtual world yet. I think that's one of the challenges that tech has had generally over the last year is recapturing those moments of serendipity, whether it's, you know, with people from another company that you're trying to do a deal with or even within the work environment those sort of water cooler moments that we've talked about a lot that are really really difficult to kind of it's really difficult to generate that kind of spontaneity digitally at the moment um and it's going to be interesting to see whether new technologies arise to kind of solve that problem it's just depressing that they haven't even tried. Mobile World Congress didn't take place digitally last year. Loads of events did take place digitally. And they haven't even tried. Now this year, again, they're kind of going, well, we'll reduce the amount of, of people and we'll do some things virtually. But they could have at least attempted to replicate some of the things they do online. It's just quite sad they haven't. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Are you gagging to get back to 100,000 people in-person events or can we do something a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated now that we've seen that there's another way do let us know your thoughts podcast at wired.co.uk our second story is all about the future of medicine we've been doing something a bit different at wired this week we launched our first three books with more to come as well. The books out now include one on artificial intelligence by our very own Matt Burgess, one on climate change by Bianca O'Grady, and one on the future of medicine by James Temperton. James, your book is looking at the innovations in how we treat disease, and it includes the moving story of one young girl with a very rare condition whose experience may help direct the future of medicine. That's right. The whole book is about pioneers, basically, right? The doctors, researchers and patients who are doing really, really amazing things. So this is a story about a girl called Mila Makovic, 
So Mila was born in November 2010 and grew up on the outskirts of Boulder in Colorado in the United States. She was an incredibly active, outgoing child. She was skiing by the age of two. She loved going on long hikes. You name it, she was up for it. But then she started walking with an interned foot. Her mother, Julia, who I spoke to for the book I worked on, took her to see a doctor who was unconcerned. But over the coming months, Mila got clumsier and clumsier. She fell over a lot. Her speech became slow and staccato. And she was now five. Doctors started to suggest that she might have a developmental delay, some sort of difficulty, but made no diagnosis. But then in December 2016, things took a turn for the worse. Mila's mother rushed her to hospital and doctors used the words seizure and blind. All of a sudden, Mila couldn't even stand up. And after about a week in hospital and a myriad of tests, a diagnosis came. Mila had Batten disease, an incredibly rare genetic disorder that gets progressively worse and is always fatal. So it started off with a mix of different symptoms that were initially a mystery, you know, maybe not so concerning at first, but soon getting much worse. And it was going on for years before a diagnosis was eventually found. What exactly is Batten disease? Yeah, you're right. It was over 100 visits to various different doctors, everyone from ophthalmologists and specialists in brain development to GPs, and then eventually this this visit to um, the emergency room, which led to this diagnosis. So children with Batten disease have a problem with something called their lysosomes. These are essentially enzyme-filled bags within cells that clear waste molecules. So with defective lysosomes, this waste builds up and kills cells, which causes brain damage and, by adolescence, inevitably death. The symptoms normally appear between the ages of 5 and 10 years of age. So children will suffer from vision problems and seizures. Their behaviour will change. They might become clumsy and then eventually their spine starts to curve. The disease is fatal. There's no treatment or cure. And there was something else at stake for Mila and her family. To have Batten, a child must inherit a specific genetic mutation from both their mother and father. Mila's doctors in Colorado could only find a mutation inherited from her mother. To find the other one, her whole genome would need sequencing, which is very expensive and very complicated. This was really, really important because Mila has a younger brother, Aslan, who was around the age at which he might start to develop symptoms. If he did, then he too would be dead before he became a teenager. Mila, of course, isn't the only child with such a disease, and Batten disease as well isn't the only rare genetic disease. But it is the rarity of these conditions that makes them so difficult to diagnose and treat, meaning many parents have to look to the frontiers of medicine in an effort to help their children. And that's exactly what Julia did. She founded a a charity in her daughter's name, Mila's Miracle Foundation, and set herself a fundraising target of $4 million to put towards scientific research and treatment. Her end goal was gene therapy. It's a field where gains are slow and expensive, but the need for breakthroughs is really acute. Every year, 7.9 million children are born with a serious birth defect of genetic or partially genetic origin. That's 6% of all births. And an estimated 3.3 million of those children will die before they reach their fifth birthday. Treatments for such diseases are scarce and cures are almost non-existent. But Julia wasn't going to give up. She compares the situation when I spoke to her for this story as a bit like being handed an empty toolbox. 
but she really refused to accept her daughter's fate. So in January 2017, she got a phone call completely out of the blue from a doctor called Tim Yu, who's a neurologist and neurogeneticist at Boston Children's Hospital. And his work just happened to involve sequencing the genomes of people with autism. He'd read about Mila on Facebook and wondered if he could help. What was really crucial here is that he both had the will and the interest, but also the expertise in terms of his his research specialism to really move things forward. So Yu's task was basically to find a fragment of a needle in a haystack the size of a planet. Eventually, Yu and his team had to do this manually. They went through Mila's genetic code by hand to try and find the bit that was broken. And after days and days of painstaking work, they found something. They found a section within the mutated gene inherited from Mila's mother that didn't match up properly with the sequence of a gene that would be quote-unquote normal. What you had found was that a 2,000-letter stretch of DNA had jumped and landed there, breaking the gene and the instructions within it. And crucially, they found that Mila's brother, Aslan, had inherited neither mutation. You and his team started to research possible treatments, and it turned out that their timing was actually very fortunate. Because in December 2016, just weeks before you first spoke to Julia, the FDA, the US agency responsible for drug regulation, had approved a drug called Spinraza, which is used to treat spinal muscular atrophy, a rare neuromuscular disorder that causes muscle weakness and is a leading genetic cause of death in infants. The defect that Spinraza targets is the assembly of a critical gene called SMN2. Spinraza reassembles this gene by removing the defect. This type of drug, the Spinraza drug, is called an antisense oligonucleotide, and it works by binding the defective RNA and tricking cells into producing normal protein. So you wondered, could he create a similar kind of genetic plaster to cover Mueller's fatal defect? How does that actually work for Batten disease? A plaster is a really good way of putting it. So Mueller's Batten disease, the jumping gene that caused it was unusual. It had essentially landed on a part of the gene between the important part that encode the instructions for making this crucial cell cleaning protein. So Mueller's mutation was, it turns out, merely changing the way the instructions were assembled. Most mutations destroy the instructions, so they can't be fixed in this way. In Mila's case, they were disrupted, but they were still intact. If you think of it a bit like the alphabet, right? So normally, this would read A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. In Mila's case, to simplify it, it reads A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, E, F, G. The alphabet is still there, but it's been interrupted. Use hope, based on what he had found with Spinraza, was that he could create a kind of genetic plaster to cover up that random piece of code that was interrupting the genetic instructions. But time was running out. Mila's condition was worsening almost by the day. One day in the summer of 2017, she said, Mummy, for the last time. And her mum, Julia, recorded that moment. Um, it's, It's absolutely haunting. By the autumn, she could no longer speak. Mila's food had to be blended with the consistency of mashed potato. And even then, she choked all the time. She had also been fitted with a gastronomy tube in preparation for the day when she would no longer be able to eat or drink independently at all. By October, she was having 30 seizures a day and her body was covered in bruises. As is typical for Batten disease, Mila's disease was manifesting itself as a series of plateaus and cliffs. 
and she was falling fast. And then in January 2018, it finally happens. The drug gets approved and things start moving even more quickly. What happens when Mila gets the first dose, when she gets that drug? We skipped over a lot of ground here, right? We wanted to condense this very, very complicated story down for the podcast. So there's been a whole raft of things going on in the background here with FDA approval and speaking to pharmaceutical companies. But there's this remarkable moment in January 2018 when Mila's mother, Julia, gets a call from Dr. Yu saying, open the letter I just put through your letterbox. Open it right now. And that's the FDA approval. And that gives them this moment of real triumph. They can give this drug to Mila and hopefully it can improve her condition. So the, the drug is called Milicin. It's the first drug ever developed for an individual, for one patient. And when it was administered through a lumbar puncture, the first few doses, there was no adverse reaction. There was, there was no reaction. Nothing happened. It was an incredibly anticlimactic moment, if you like. But then over the next six months, the number of seizures that Mila had started to go down really drastically. And they also became less severe, where before they had been long and incredibly violent. Now they were short and calm. And Mila also began to hold up her own body again. And she started eating. She even started walking. And with her mother standing behind her with her arms interlocked, she was able to take a few stumbling steps. But as the months turned to years, her condition started to worsen again, although it did so more slowly than it had before. Dr. Yu and Julia both believe that Milicin, the drug that Mila was given, improved her quality of life and lessened the severity of her condition. But ultimately, by the time that the diagnosis of Batten disease was made and the drug was developed, they did this in about a year. It really is a remarkable feat of scientific endeavour. But the time that it took, although it was very quick... The disease had progressed so far and was so incredibly aggressive that there was only so much it could do. And sadly, Mila passed away on February 11th, 2021. But her mother, Julia, doesn't want the story to end there. This is, she told me, a story about so much more than one child. That's the thing, isn't it? It's a very moving and very sad story about Mila, but it could lay the groundwork for future medical treatments for other children. It's about the development of a new kind of personalised medicine. You know, as you say, this medicine was made specifically for Mila and for her condition. And that potentially lays a groundwork for other sick children in the future to be treated in a similar way. But there are big challenges that remain. It's hugely expensive to make a drug for one person and it doesn't really work with the current pharmaceutical company models. There are also regulatory hurdles to overcome and ethical issues to consider too. It's really, really complicated. Um, the cost of Milicin hasn't been publicly disclosed, but Spinraza is amongst the most expensive drugs in the world. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for a course of treatment. So this isn't cheap. But what Dr. Yu has done, essentially, is conducted a trial of one person, and now he wants to repeat it. And there's a lot of momentum behind his work. The pharmaceutical industry has already progressed from, from developing drugs that treat diabetes and heart disease, the kind of generic pills that are almost white-labelled now. And these are illnesses that affect millions of people. 
Well, pharmaceutical companies can now develop treatments like Spinraza, which target diseases found only in a few thousand patients. That's why they're so expensive. Mielison has shown that scientists have the tools at their disposal to develop treatments that can be applied to only one patient with a specific but targetable genetic mutation. Dr. Yu put it to me that it was a bit like a large soft serve ice cream machine, the technology that's required to develop these drugs. You plumb in the details of the genetic plaster that you want to create, crank a handle and out pops a drug. So if they can scale that production up and work out a way of making it successfully economically, then there's real hope here. So in the future, the mutations that cause rare, often fatal diseases could be targeted with precision medicines, just like Mielison. As whole genome sequencing costs come down, such, such checks will become more routine, which will give physicians access to all the data they need to make an early and accurate diagnosis. And that was the key thing that was missing with Mieler. The diagnosis wasn't made early enough. So you sees a future where parents of children with potentially fatal genetic mutations are immediately connected to experts who can explore the feasibility of making a drug and start the process in days, not months. Parents could even be screened before they try to have a child to find out if they have mutations that could cause a fatal or life-limiting disease. These parents would then receive counselling to help them make the best decision. A fetus with an incurable fatal genetic mutation could be aborted or there could be procedures done in utero that would correct the genetic faults and mean that a child is born with the best chance of a long and healthy life. As Vicky said, there are incredibly complicated regulatory, ethical, let alone economic questions as to how this can be scaled up successfully. But there is a real potential here to eradicate some fatal genetic diseases before they even exist and that's a huge promise for precision medicine. As Dr. Yu told me, the diagnostic portion is ready to implement right now. We just need the political will and the money to do it. This is just from one chapter of James's Wired book on the future of medicine. If you want to find out more about the scientists and clinicians pushing medical boundaries, you can pick up the book as well as the other Wired books on AI and climate change by searching for Wired Guides on your favourite bookseller site or following the link in the show notes. And that chapter is published online it's in, in its entirety and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. Time for some of your emails now. Amit, we got an email from Carl, who's had some very nice things to say. That's right, yeah. Carl wrote in to say how much he's been enjoying the podcast. He says he started listening during the first lockdown a year ago and quickly downloaded six months' worth of previous episodes that he binged through while we were all stuck at home. He said he wants to let you know what a superb podcast you're making and that he's not surprised we've made it to over 500 episodes. He's just immigrated to the US, Australia from the UK, and he says that we also kept him company during two weeks of mandatory hotel quarantine. Thank you, Carl. That's so lovely to hear. Uh, glad you're enjoying it. That's very nice. Yeah, very nice of you to say. Uh, thanks so much. And Vicky, we had an email from Mark as well. Yeah, Mark writes in about music recommendation engines. We've been talking about how to get out of your algorithmic feedback loop and discover new music. 
Mark says that he uses Apple Music, uh, but he's a bit disappointed in the recommendations that he gets. He says he has quite eclectic music tastes, including psychobilly, folk rock, alternative, world techno and mariachi. I'd say eclectic covers it, Mark. Uh, But he finds he gets recommendations for more popular artists like Drake, Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato, which don't really gel with what he wants to listen to. He also raises the question of how to make sure smaller artists get paid enough, a question that has really been dogging the music industry, especially as streaming services have become more and more popular. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your emails, podcast at wired.co.uk, if you want to get in touch with us about anything we've discussed on the show this week, or if you're like Carl on any of the shows that we've put out over the last six months. No show is too old to get in touch with us about podcast at wired.co.uk. And please do consider leaving us a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. It means a lot to us and it helps to get the good word out about our little show. Thanks so much for listening this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.